You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. There we go. There we go. Oh, guys, good morning. <clears throat> if you're if you're joining us, uh, we're delighted you're in the room. We're starting a new series today, and it's going to be called Faith That. It's going to be based on uh, some reflections from the book of James. If you've never read James, if you've not got a Bible, we'd love to buy you a Bible. But can I encourage you to read James? It's going to make more sense if you've already read it. It's only five chapters. Uh, which those of you that like a bit of detail, it's only 108 verses, which is 2,304 words. I'm trying to make you realise it is really short, but it is also really rich. Uh, overall, uh, the, the chapter we're going to be looking at today, chapter one, is a bit about faith that perseveres. I want to encourage you to have faith that perseveres. It's about trials and temptations. Trials and temptations are inevitable. And through them, God can deepen and widen our faith. And we want to go deeper. Our um, eldest daughter um, does dance classes, and she's at that age where she absolutely loves it. And she's got a show coming up later this year, and she's going to be on the the big stage. There'll be a couple of thousand people there watching, friends and family, and and all sorts of people. different ages from this dance school that that will all go and watch this show that they put on. Anyway, one of the dances that she's got to do, there's a number of speaking parts in it where she's got to learn the lines. And actually, there's quite a few paragraphs considering her age. And so we're driving somewhere the other day and she's rehearsing them. And um, she said the lines without looking at the bit of paper, like word for word, bang on. Now, I've got to be honest, the challenge for me is I'm one of these parents that really panics about these things. She's pretty chilled about it, but I'm panicking about you're never going to remember all of them. You're never going to remember it all, especially when you've got the pressure of the big stage and everyone's there watching. So as, as she's saying it in the car, I'm like, this is a safe, sterile environment. This is like, this is no good. This is not a pressure environment. So I said, what you, what you need is a, is a bit of pressure. So anyway, I pulled the car over and I did that thing on her face where it's like cringeworthy dad territory but I'm like rubbing her face on like now now do it I've given you a distraction do it again and anyway straight away first time not a problem at all so I said well what you need is you need a real test so I've turned the music up and I'm prodding her and I'm tickling her and I'm shouting random words at her like quite loudly like carrot and frog and mushroom. She's like, what on earth is going on here? Anyway, this just gives you an insight into my life. I, there's a couple of things to say, pray for her, pray for me and all of that. But anyway, I'm, I'm thinking, I, we were thinking different things. I'm thinking I'm going to distract you and I'm going to take your mind off it and then we're going to come back to it and you're now going to do it. But because it's all a bit of chaos and I'm going a bit wild, she's totally misunderstood. She's thinking she needs to do it there and then in that moment whilst I'm doing all of this thing. So I'm singing and shouting and prodding and (coughs) shouting random words. And bless her poor little soul, she's like reciting these words as calmly as possible under these strenuous conditions. And she absolutely nailed it, word perfect. But half of you I know are now judging my competence to parent. And I, I understand that. I've kind of went there slightly myself. But in life, we go through these things and we go through these moments of test and they can knock us off course and 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 we've we've got to know and we've got to learn and we've got to understand to be a people that has a faith that perseveres because testing is inevitable 
it's an inevitable part of life. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, I wouldn't recommend whatsoever doing what I did. I meant well. I think what I found really interesting with her is that she started to have this confidence as a result that it's like, well, if I can do it under that, of course I can do it on the stage. Life is kind of fairly easy now. And I think it is similar with our faith. Healthfully process the challenges that we face can strengthen us and can encourage us rather than break us. Smith Wigglesworth, uh, I love reading this stuff, he once said this, great faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests and great triumphs can only come out of great trials. The challenges you face, the resistance that you encounter may just be part of the structure on which you start to build a foundation for all that might be ahead for you in the days ahead. It doesn't need to, it doesn't have to take you out. It doesn't need to take the wind out of your sails, but for it to be that, rather than um, it become a pain and a wound, we've got to learn to take the splinter out of it and start to heal the infection. We've got to be people that learn to have faith that perseveres. It'd be so much easier to have this series based on some of the easy stuff, you know, on the exciting stuff, on the stuff that appeals to us. But I don't believe we can take the harder parts out of the Bible, the parts that confront us and the parts that encourage us and challenge us to change. We can't twist them to fit our lifestyles. And James, I've got to be honest, I think James is quite a tough book. At times it's actually quite an uncomfortable read, but it's the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of comfort. So let's just, let's just grab an overview of what's going on. James is likely to be the half-brother of Jesus. We see in Acts 15 and Acts 21 that both highlight that he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And James writes the book predominantly to the Jewish Christians who used to be associated with the church, who were scattered when Stephen was martyred. You can pick up some of that story if you want to in Acts chapter 8. Then James opens the book by saying this, verse 1, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, the Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. That's the context, and then he jumps straight in talking about trials and sufferings. That's because that's who his audience are. And there's a, there's a few things that I think that we start to see quite clearly. <clears throat> We start to see a relationship between faith and works. James talks about faith 14 times in his letter. There's 108 verses in this book, and 59 of those verses are around commands to obey. Obedience flows throughout this book. Genuine faith is going to cause us to act Genuine faith is going to have a response. We, we do something. We change the way we live. We change the way we think. We change the way we act. All of these things are wrapped up in what it is to have genuine faith, and it starts to align. I think we, we live in a time and a moment where if we use the word obedience, people start to say, well, you're, you're a traditionalist. You're being legalistic, and people want to run a mile from that. People say, well, having faith in Jesus is not doing just this and this and this and this. And James is kind of saying, well, it kind of actually also is. You don't just listen to the word, you do what it says. James 2 verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, 
if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions. Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and it is useless. I think if James was to lead a church today, there's almost going to be a queue of people who are considering leaving. You may feel that this morning. It's like, hang on a minute. It's like, no, but if we're going to do what it says... We actually have to do something. We can't just be people that read it. Obviously, I think we've got to understand the relationship between faith and works and put it in a biblical perspective. And, but this book presents us, I would say, with challenges. His overall point and his overall direction is quite clear. You can't separate the two. James shows us that faith isn't just works in terms of doing stuff, but it's that faith actually works. It is effective. It changes things. It changes the world around us. We have to take the words and the works of Jesus and apply them to our lives, and then we watch the impact that it starts to have not only on us, but on others around us. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, obey my commandments. Sometimes I think we can slip into this, hey, anything goes. You know, like, I, I love Jesus, I do what I like. Well, not, not really. Well, no, not at all, actually. I love the vineyard because they're like, do as you like is. Well, no, not really, if I'm honest. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. We have to understand that this is part of the impact of our faith and part of the impact that that then makes on the world around us. It's part of the impact that we make on this city is that if we love him, we're going to obey him. And I think G James speaks so clearly in this book into so many practical areas, trials and poverty and riches and materialism and favoritism, social justice, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, making plans, praying, what to do when you're sick. All of it is crammed into these 108 verses. There's so much in it that it's almost hard at times, I think, to follow the structure of it. But he returns time and time and time and time again to how faith impacts not only our lives, but those around us and the city that we live in, both locally then and also something globally. Our faith is supposed to have an impact wider than us. Faith causes us to start new small groups. It's the cause and the spark for why we'd want to plant churches. It's why some of you might want to be school governors or teachers or to pick up litter. Literally, the whole thing is, I think, wrapped up in this, to put in an extra shift at work, why you might collect the shopping for your neighbours, why you might, or why we have done something like 422 and do a pantry like they spoke about a minute ago, or run English lessons or partner with multiple other organisations and, 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 because faith moves us to take steps of radical obedience to make the gospel and the good news of Jesus known. James chapter 1 introduces a number of things, but I think the main thing that we start to see is around trials and temptations. Why do, why do, we, why do we face them? How do we go through them? I think it's all in there. And if I could summarise in one sentence, I'd say this. And I guess this would be part of the take-home this morning, that trials and temptations are inevitable. And both are intended to deepen your faith. Trials and temptations are inevitable. And both are intended to deepen and widen our faith. I'm, I'm not sure, if I'm honest, we always think like that. Do we 
fully grasp and fully understand, you will face trials and you will face temptations. And both are intended to deepen your faith. There's actually a purpose in it. Now, we're not going to have time to, to dig into it all, but let's just break it down a little bit. Let's just have a quick look. I'm going to read from James chapter 1 and starting in verse 2, and it says this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask your generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unsustainable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about for God has honoured them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers and the little flower droops and fails and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptations. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is the last time, and maybe I should caveat the last time, with potentially the last time this week, that I'm going to talk about mini-eggs. Some of you are starting to think I have a problem and uh, starting to wonder how you might report me. Honestly, I'm not in denial about this. I just think this is such a safe share. And uh, anyway, the, the kids were at school the other week, and I'm working from home, and I'm in the house alone, and they've both got a tube of mini eggs that I've bought them. They've got about 30 in each, less five, because they've had a few. The, the less five, actually, they've only had three because I had two from each of their tubes because I convinced them, so I've had two of them. Anyway, they're at school, and I've got just a couple of dilemmas. Is it wrong to rob from your kids? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, I don't know about What if they never know? What if I own up when they get home and because they're young, they're so kind and so forgiving and it wouldn't be a problem? Surely they're not going to mind just a few. What if I replace them? What if I just nick the lot and they don't even remember that they even had them because they're at that age? The only, I've made the assessment of how many have already gone, so surely it's not actually going to hurt if they're not going to notice anyway how many I might rob. Now, just for the sake of clarity, I don't actually have a problem. I do really like them, but everything is okay with me. Steph often has this little queue of people afterwards just gently trying to check in. Is, is Paul okay? Does he need help? Is this out of hand? I am okay. But I just want to drop something intentionally in the room of using a safe share of mini-eggs because greed and lust, and anger, and pride, and pornography, and flirting, and drinking, and consumerism. I just need the next thing, and comparison, and self-loathing, and relationships, and laziness, and we could probably go on, and on, and on, and on, and on. But what's the idol for you right now? What's the mini-egg equivalent? 
Trials and temptations are inevitable. What, what is James highlighting? Well, he's saying that God is sovereign over our trials. Our trials are never outside of his control and he accomplishes his purposes through trials. And I don't know if you're like me, some of you wish that verse two just wasn't there. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Do you wish that passage kind of wasn't there? Great joy to go through troubles of any kind. I think it's a profound and quite crucial passage. It's not a name it and claim it, pretend it's all good, you're going to be prosperous regardless kind of verse. James is writing to a hurting and to a predominantly poor community of Christians. And he, con- he tells them to consider their trials a great joy. It's a command through which he's trying to address how we think. It's not about feelings. It's not about just stick a smile on your face and grit your teeth and pretend and carry on. James is saying, hey, it's a joy for you. Delight in your hardship. I think by doing that, he's highlighting something of the sovereignty of God. I often, when I've read that, I've pondered John chapter 11, where you've got Mary and Martha and they approach Jesus just after Lazarus has died. And Jesus didn't start saying to them, hey, God had a plan, let's rejoice in it. They tell Jesus that he's died. And verse 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 35, they told him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved them. Jesus comforted them and he wept. And yet the sovereignty of God still prevailed and Jesus eventually raises Lazarus from the dead. They didn't know that was going to happen. They couldn't see the thing that he was about to do. How do you experience joy in the trial when you're in the midst of it and you can't see out the other side? Verse 2 says, when troubles of any kind come your way, We're kind of talking about everything here. I think small trials, big trials, tragedies, minor, major, it's all of it. The trials in themselves aren't necessarily the joy, but the joy comes in realising that those trials sit under the authority of God who is accomplishing his purposes through them, whether we realise it or not. So what's he accomplishing well verse three and four i think start to give us an insight it says this for you know when your faith is tested your endurance has a chance to grow so let it grow for when your endurance is fully developed you will be perfect and complete needing nothing it goes on to say all the way similar things all the way to verse 12 where it says god blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation afterwards they will receive the crown of life that god has promised to those who love them james encourages us to embrace trials not so much for what they are but for what god can sovereignly do through them i think there's four things in trials that we could and we should uh consider to allow us to be people that rejoice the first is this i think we learn to grow in his likeness the second is we learn to trust his wisdom the third is we learn to rely on his resources and the fourth is we learn to live for his reward let me just break each of them down slightly we start to grow in his likeness testing your faith verse three says develops endurance which must finish in its work, verse 4, so that you may be fully developed, perfect and complete, needing nothing. 
God's goal in our lives is maturity in him, for us to grow into his likeness. We often think the goal of life is to be successful, to have a career plan, to have the relationship, to have the house plan, to have the good holiday plan, to achieve some kind of standing, or right standing in the eyes of the world or a family or whoever it might be. And when trials hit, one of those things often ends up devastated. But if our goal is to know God and to be conformed into his likeness, I think we see it differently because we start to take each trial and we consider no matter how tough it is, it has the potential to move us towards growing into his likeness. The only way that can happen is to have this active, radical, God-centered perspective in our life. If our goal is to fix our circumstances, I think we're in danger. Something else is going to come up. But if our goal is to know God and grow in relationship with him, Surely we can be people that rejoice no matter what. When our sights are above the stuff of the world, when our sights are on him and a knowledge of him and maturing in him, trials can be a joy because they teach us to know, to love and to trust him. The second one is, I think, we learn to trust in his wisdom. Verse five, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. We don't have it all. I think is what that verse is saying. We need more and we have to ask for more and we have to ask God for more. Wisdom grows. I'd suggest it grows through knowledge and perspective and experience. Knowledge and perspective and experience. A lack of any of those means that we would lack wisdom. But when you think about it, when you walk through trials, you start to realise that we don't know what's going on. That's a lack of knowledge. We don't see our situation from every angle, so we lack perspective, and then we often lack experience in knowing what to do. On the other hand, God has all knowledge. He has an eternal perspective, and Jesus experienced every kind of test and overcame them. And everything we need is therefore on tap and available to us. Verse 5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. Trials, if helpfully directed, cause us to realise that we don't have, but it teaches us where we can go to get it. The third one is we learn to rely on his voices, on his resources. Verse 9 to 11, the believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honoured them. Those who are rich should boast about that because God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flowers droops and fails and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away as will all of their achievements. Many of James's readers, as I mentioned earlier, were likely poor. Some would have been rich and some would have been trusting in that wealth. And James reminds us that trials have this remarkable leveling effect. Don't you find that? If you're, if you're poor, you get to boast about the fact that your circumstances lean you towards trusting in God. And in the absence of any physical resource, you get to boast that you're rich in your status of knowing God and being a child of him. On the other hand, if you're rich, trials brings the realisation that actually money can't solve the problems and it can't cover up our hurts. Either way, we're left with this dependency question Will life be built upon a physical resource or on something spiritual that only God can provide? 
And then the fourth one and the final one, we learn to live for his reward. James closes off the section by saying in verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards, they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We are blessed if we endure trials and temptations. I don't know whether we naturally think of it that way. We're blessed if we endure trials and temptations. Blessed. I'd like, hang on a minute, we're going to go from just knowing or potentially experiencing joy, and now we're blessed if we go through it. It's not the first and certainly not the last time that James leans on Jesus and his teaching and he starts to reference something that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Trials cause us to be reminded and to remember that we're living life for a reward beyond what is now, a reward that is to come. This is, this is just the rehearsal. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our present troubles are small and they won't last long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen for the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. It's ahead what we see now is just in part, but one day we will see face to face. We all face trials. They are inevitable. For those of you that think you're right in the thick of it, that you're consumed by it currently, I trust that's encouraging for you to reflect on that and consider that. <coughs> Let's just have a quick look at temptations. This is kind of like the, <coughs> I said I wouldn't mention it, but I'll mention it again. This is like the mini egg stuff. That's a safe share. But what, what are you going to put in the category of that? James 1 verse 13. Remember, when you've been tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Every trial has a degree of temptation in it, I would say. When we face financial <coughs> difficulty, we're tempted to trust or distrust God's provision. When someone close dies, we're tempted to distrust God's love. When we experience some kind of unjust suffering, we're tempted to question God's justice. I think we could go on and on and on. But according to verse 13, whilst God might test us, he doesn't tempt us. Remember, when you've been tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. I think that verse is saying we have some responsibility in our temptation moments. Now, we could go into a huge depth on this and go down a bit of a rabbit hole here. And this could become a series in itself. But let's just draw a bit of focus on what James says here. I think it holds a bit of a mirror up to us. Verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. We could go in a few circles and go off on a lengthy discussion. But let's, let's just look at the fact that sin doesn't just happen out of the blue. There is a process. And that process, James says in in verse 13, will kill you. So if you misunderstand the process, 
you won't be equipped or ready to unpick it and to stand against it. So it's, it's been a while. I'm sorry that I've, I've kind of let it slip, but I've come up with something that begins with the same letter. And yes, I did spend way too long trying to come up with this. So I just want to mention four things. There's deception, desire, disobedience, and death. Deception. Genesis 3 is a classic. Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Did God really say? There's always deception in temptation. Do you you remember my dilemma? Is it wrong to rob from the kids? What if they never know? What if I own up to it and they're just kind and they're forgiving? Does that feel similar to something that we might think of God? Surely they wouldn't mind if I just nick a few. I could replace them without them even knowing. If I just nick the lot, they wouldn't even know or remember. Only I am the one who's made the assessment of how many are there in the first place. It's all deception. All of it starts with deception. I think we're quite good at allowing temptation to come from our own desires, which then entice us and drag us away. The second one is desire. James says temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. A fish doesn't chase after an empty hook. It's baited. And often it's baited with something that is specifically going to entice and attract that fish. The bait hides the hook. That's how it works. Temptation appeals to our desires, but it hides the hook. It hides the fact that actually it's going to kill us. If the desire that once is deceived, if we haven't cut it off, one mini egg becomes another mini egg, and who knows where that's going to end up. What is that thing that it is for you right now? Sin starts with disordered thoughts, which give way to disordered desires, from which we then begin to want the thing that will actually, if unchecked, destroy us. Disobedience then kicks in. Disobedience kicks in when we act on that desire. The result of disobedience is death. I know, I know the imagery is pretty stark and it's pretty vivid, and if you run with it, it's actually pretty terrifying, but I think it's meant to be that way because I think we're meant to see it for what it is. Can I say that some of you will be flirting with some stuff? Whatever that deception that you're buying or that desire that you're fulfilling, honestly, let today be a marker. Run from it. Run from it because it will kill you. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. It comes from within and it drags us away. So what on earth do we do? We remember that God is faithful for our salvation. James 1.17, he never changes or casts a shift in shadow. In your trials and temptations, don't believe the lies. God is good. Don't believe anything else. Why would God say that or ask that of me does he know well the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the lord god had made one day when he asked the woman did god really say you must not eat the fruit from any tree in the garden it's lies that's lies god wants what is good for you trust in your trials and turn from your temptations Verse 16, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. 
Don't be misled. I think it's so easy to be tricked by the lies and the deception. And we cannot allow ourselves to be people that are misled. The truth is, verse 17, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. Can I just end by talking about the goodness of God? Because it's unchanging, it's undeserving, and it's unending. It's unchanging. God is perpetually, constantly, consistently good. He never has a bad mood. He never changes for the worst because he could never change for the better because he doesn't need to because he's perfect in all of his ways. He's wonderfully good. You can't get any better than God. He's good. He is goodness. He's undeserved. Verse 18 says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. We see a lot about works in the book of James. But it's the foundation, I think, is all about grace. We have new life, not based on works, but based on grace. And he chose to take his word and he chose to write it on our hearts, hearts that had sin at the core. Therefore, we become good because of him. He makes us good. We need to know and understand this undeserved goodness that is capable of changing us from the inside out. The final thing I want to mention about his goodness is this. It's unending. We're the first fruits of creation. That's what verse... 18 is really saying we're the foretaste of what's to come what God has done in our lives to change our hearts by his goodness is only a preview of the day to come when all things will be made new in creation the day is coming where there will be no more trials and no more temptations in the meantime we take heart because he's good he saves us from our sin And if he can save us from our sin, he can surely see us through our sorrow. We consider trials, therefore, to be a joy. And we can be steadfast in our temptations because God is good. And a good God has conquered sin and suffering through his death and resurrection. And it allows us to have a perspective and a faith that perseveres. Your faith can persevere regardless of the trials or the temptations that you might face. Why don't we stand together to see what the Lord might want to do among us this morning.